Let's pray. Father, thank you for these somewhat cryptic words. We pray that you might help us to understand what you are saying to us by your spirit through them. Many of you may have been following the current inquiry into former uh, post office workers. Uh, if you don't know the story, um, a former sub-postmasters uh, cheated out of hundreds, some of them thousands of pounds, uh, some given criminal convictions, uh, many of them having their names uh, smeared. But it feels for these former sub-postmasters that things have turned a corner, that perhaps everything has changed. They have um, ITV to thank, I suspect. And for us as a church, perhaps, it may feel that things have changed. There may be even a day we feel upon which everything changed as we look back. When a so-and-so arrived in the church, when such-and-such left, when we signed for this building, our last service in the old school building, when we moved in here after the pandemic, perhaps. There may be a day, we feel, when everything changed, a day that marks church life into a before and an after. And for us personally, we may feel that we have a day like that in our lives. A happy day when you started a new job in a new city, when you got married, had a child, when you started a new secondary school, when you turned to Christ and got baptised. Or for some, a sadder day, a death, a diagnosis, a crisis in health or in your family. Or maybe, maybe we're still waiting for a big day to come, waiting as a church, waiting personally for a day when everything will be different, hoping for blessing that might be just around the corner. Well, in Haggai chapter 2, we have a day in which everything had changed for God's people, for these Jewish exiles. Three times in the section Claire read for us, we find the phrase, from this day on, verse 15, 18, and 19. What day was this? Or verse 18, from this day on, this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. This day is the day that the foundation of God's temple was laid. And this day forms the setting of Haggai's final two words from God, uh, the first in um, verse 10 to verse 19, and then the second in verse 20 to 23. Although to be clear, probably the day that these words came to Haggai was more the day of commemoration, the sort of ceremonial laying of the first foundation stone. Um, because we know that, that we've moved on three months in time. If you've been with us, uh, the past couple of weeks, um, you'll know that Haggai's first oracle uh, came in late August, 520 BC. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it was month 6, day 1 in the Hebrew year. And then Haggai's second oracle in chapter 2, verse 1, 
Well, that came nearly a month after the people got back to work in 1 verse 15. So this was mid-October now, month seven, day one. And we're now in mid-December for these final two oracles. Month nine, day 24. So we've gone from mid-September to mid-December. The building work is well underway. But God's people have paused, it seems, to celebrate. And God has spoken to them as they've looked back, looked around, and looked ahead on this commemoration day. And so with them, we'll do those three things this morning. First of all, we will look back. Uh, Look back, God tells them, to your days of dirtiness. Look back to your days of dirtiness. From verse 10 through to verse 17. It's a bit of a gear change, verse 10, I think. Uh, For such a brief book, um, Haggai is not short on emotional highs and lows. We had the apathy and then the pain of chapter 1, a people who had neglected God's house and his glory, suffering under his hand. Um, And then we had great promise that God was with them, as Andrew reminded us, as they convicted of sin, uh, picked up their spades at the end of chapter 1 and began to rebuild. But then last week, as Charlie showed us, uh, came disappointment in chapter 2 as the temple they were rebuilding failed even to impress them, let alone anyone else. But then we reached a high again last week as God boldly declared that he was with them, that he would shake the world for them, that a great glory would come. And then we come crashing back down in chapter 2, verses 10 to 14. Because it turns out Um, that the lack of building materials wasn't the issue. It was the state of the people's hearts that had been their problem. God sends Haggai to uh, to have a little chat with the priests in verse 11. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? Unfamiliar words for us, perhaps. We're in the world of the ritual law here, of Leviticus, priests, sacrifices, holiness, cleanness. And and imagine someone carrying home to eat for dinner um, the food that they have given as a peace offering to the Lord that day, and some of the meat that they've offered, meat that's been made holy. This meat touches the fold of their coat, and the fold of their coat then touches some of the food in their kitchen. Does the food that touched the coat, that touched the holy meat, become holy? No. The priests answer, verse 12. Holiness is not contagious. It cannot be passed on just by touch. Stand in the presence of a holy God, and you don't become holy too. You'd be burnt to a crisp. But this first question is really just there to set up a second question. What happens if some olive oil, a bottle of Merlot, some stew, comes into contact with an unclean dead body? Well, in that case, it becomes defiled. The priest's answer. Holiness is not contagious, but uncleanness is. Press a clean hand 
on a dirt-covered wall, and you won't clean the wall. Place your dirty hand on a freshly painted, crisp white wall, and you will dirty that wall. Holiness is not contagious, but defilement is, says God. A dirty thing makes dirty everything it comes into contact with. Then Haggai said, verse 14, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. This people were dirty, says God. Their hearts were stained by sin and they made dirty everything they touched, like Midas with his gold-creating hand. Nothing would be left unaffected that they came into contact with. Neither the works of their hands, what they do, nor their worship and sacrifices, whatever they offered there, would be pleasing to God. What had made their hearts dirty? Haggai doesn't say. But surely it was the stinking corpse of the unfinished temple lying in the heart of their community's life. This is why they never had enough. In verse 16, this is why blight, mildew and hail had been their daily reality. In verse 17, it's because they were dirty, defiled by their sin, and making dirty everything they touched. Look back at those days. God tells them on this special commemorative day. Look back and remember who you were as a people. Dirty and defiled. And so for us, we too need to look back, not to a day we met in a different building, not to a day when different people stood up at the front here or we sat next to different people in our chairs or even where we sat in a different church ourselves. But we must look back to a day when this church, as it is today, would not have existed because we had not turned to Christ. We must look back to the days when we were lost in our sin, dirty and defiled, and when our sin made dirty everything we touched, we have not been, always been, who we now are. Why do we look back? That God might rub our noses in our sin, that we might see that really we're not that much better now? No. The opposite. That we might see how far we have come, how far in his grace our Lord has brought us, how totally he has transformed us, that a bunch of lost and selfish sinners might become his church, his dwelling place. We look back that we might see how far we have come. Think of the person who's been in a near-fatal car accident. They wake up in hospital with no idea what's happened to them and learn of doctors who've worked miracles to keep them alive. A grueling course of physio commences, and then a few months later, they take their first unaided steps, and it is excruciatingly painful. 
Look back, says the physio, that you might see how far you have come, that you can walk again. Maybe there's a particular sin that haunted your life before you were a Christian. A particular way of thinking, an action, a pattern, a habit, an addiction. And it ruined everything you did. See how the Lord has set you free. You are not now what you once were. And rejoice. And if you're not yet a Christian, well, the Bible says that you can't look back. That you are still in your sin. You are still dirty. The things that you do, the offerings that you bring to God, are contaminated. But Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to clean you. So come to him. Admit your sin. Say sorry. That he might wash you clean. God's first instruction to his people on this special day is to look back on their days of dirtiness. His second, look now at your days of delight. Look now at your days of delight from verses 18 and 19. With verse 18, everything changes. Nothing is the same for these Jewish exiles. From this day on, the Lord says, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. With the laying of the foundation of God's temple that they are commemorating this day, everything had changed. Why? Because they'd repented. They had done what God had instructed them to do in Haggai's first word, in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7 and 8. They had taken a good, hard look at themselves and their lives, and they had returned to God. How do we know? Because of their actions. They picked up their shovels, and they began to rebuild God's temple. By their actions, they showed their changed attitudes, their changed hearts. And just like that, they were in days of defilement and dirtiness no more. Their dirty hearts, a thing of the past, a new day for them had dawned. And brothers and sisters, are we not in an even better position than them? For they knew that as they turned back to God and expressed repentance through obedience, God would somehow, in some way, show them mercy and accept their sacrifices once more. But we know how it is that he could do that. How it is that he could allow a dirty people into his holy presence without them being burnt to a crisp. For we know the cross. We know his blood. We know the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. We know that a day has occurred in history that has changed everything. For each one of us personally, 
for God's people across the globe and throughout history and for the entire world as this offer comes for all. We know that a day has occurred in history that has changed everything. The incarnation and then the crucifixion and then the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we could not reach up to him, he came down and became one of us. The second member of the Trinity laid aside his majesty, leaving behind his perfect communion with his Father and the Spirit and becoming a man of sorrows. That he might live an ordinary life of stubbed toes, coughs you can't shift, tear-stained eyes and be condemned to death as a terrorist and give up his blood, and then rise again, that the universe might see that it really was finished, that our dirty souls really had been scrubbed clean. For us, as a church today, for you, as a believer today, we are on the other side of history. We're in the after of the resurrection day, Yep, back to Haggai. Um, And we seem to double back in verse uh, 18. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. We seem to be back in the land of barren plains and empty plates. Though they're three months into the rebuilding project. Where's the fruit? Has God let them down? Has anything changed at all? Hold on, says God. Hold on. For remember, this is winter now, the dead of winter. It's probably a week before Christmas that this oracle was given. The wheat would have been harvested midsummer. The grapes late summer. Plowing and planting would have been done over September and October. Winter was the season of waiting. Last year's barn stood empty. It had all been sown. There was not yet any signs of fruit on the trees. But there will be, God whispers. There will be. For from this day on, I will bless you, he says. It's a blink and you miss it promise. Just four little words. But it is precious. And it's the beginning of something, the beginning of a beat of hope that will get louder and louder as the book of Haggai draws near to its end until it's almost deafening as it casts us far beyond the boundaries of this little two-chapter book. From this day on, I will bless you. No more droughts, blight or mildew, no more days of dirtiness. I will bless you, says the Lord. You are in days of delight now. Look and see. Don't let the barren plains and the empty barns fool you. Hope is just around the corner. From this day on, I will bless you, says the Lord. And what an extraordinary comfort that must have been to these disappointed former exiles to know that things really would get better that God would somehow make them clean, that days of blessing would be just around the corner. 
what hope these words must have given them. After years of oppression in a foreign kingdom and months of struggle in their homeland. But again, don't we know so much more of this, brothers and sisters? For Haggai, for he saw fresh grapes and juicy pomegranates. He saw full plates and overflowing cups. He saw a physical building standing resplendent in gold and silver. But we see so much more. We see God's temple made man, his spirit filling every believer to make underwhelming us his human dwelling place. Good fruit and good wine are just the beginning of what we see as we look forward to dining with our king forever. Gold and silver will be so common in the new creation that they will pave the roads. We will walk on them. The physical temple will be redundant. The sun will be handed its P45, or it will no longer be needed. And we will see God's glory filling every single corner of the new creation with light and wonder and rapture. They will see that too, of course. They just didn't know as much about what to expect as we do. Don't you just want to be there now? We are not in days of dirtiness any longer. Because of that day, the day that Christ was raised, everything has changed. And we are in days of delight. See how big these promises are and see how much bigger in Christ they have become. Robert um, knew that his golden uh, pocket watch was precious. It was a family heirloom having been passed down by his grandfather. He acquired it in 1914 and he once had it valued at $6,000. We just had a little inkling. It might be even more precious. So he took it on the Antiques Roadshow. What did he find? They said it was a Patek Philippe. They valued it at $250,000. And two years later, it was sold at Sotheby's for $1.5 million. And its value just keeps going up and up. And so for us, these promises in Christ. So rejoice. We are in the days of delight. There can be a spring in our spiritual step. For though our barns as a church may seem empty, though there may not be much sign of fruit on the trees, in your personal faith, in our church, for the church across the nation, this is the reality. God has said he will bless us. And that is exactly what he is doing. There are no conditions with this promise. No untils, no ifs, no buts, no maybes. Just from this day on, I will bless you. And while that doesn't mean that we're immune from hardship, it does mean that even those tough times, painful as they may be, are somehow part of God's bigger plan to bless us. That's the story. Those hardships will one day tell difficult as it is to see and believe in the moment. 
from this day on, I will bless you. Take Jesus at his word. Believe him despite appearances. Trust him, whether you can already see the blessings beginning to sprout or not. He won't let you down. So God's first instruction to his people on this special commemorative day was to look back at their days of dirtiness. His second, that they might look now and see that they're in days of delight. And his third, look ahead to your day of deliverance. Look ahead to your day of deliverance. From verse 20 through to the end. I don't know about you, but um, I could have quite happily finished Haggai, I think, at 2 verse 19. It would have been a nice note to end on. But God isn't quite done, it turns out. He has one more word. I mean, as we began in chapter 1 verse 1 with a word specifically to Governor Zerubbabel and High Priest Joshua, we end with a quiet ear in the word of just Zerubbabel. And it's a slightly strange word. Let us read it again. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. If you were with us last week, um, you'll remember that God promised a shaking in chapter 2, verses 6 to nine. God was going to shake the heavens and the earth, all the nations. And again, in verse 21 here, we learn that God will shake the heavens and the earth. But this time it's bigger. God will not shake them just for their material goods, for the silver and gold needed to rebuild the temple. He will shake them in judgment. As he did with Egypt in the time of Moses, With Midian, in the time of Gideon, God will rout his enemies once and for all. Royal thrones will be overturned. Foreign kingdoms shattered. Chariots and drivers overthrown. God will shake the heavens and the earth in judgment. And there will be no coming back for God's enemies this time. For our God, the God, is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He longs for all to be saved. His offer of cleansing from sin is for all and has been paid for at the cost of his son. But being slow to anger does not mean that he will never be angry. For he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He will one day bring justice. He will one day right wrongs. His patience will run out. And he will shake his creation in judgment. And though a society like ours finds that hard to accept, there are very many people 
around the world and even on our streets who are bitterly suffering right now, he would tell you what a good thing it is that God will bring justice. God will shake the heavens and the earth in judgment. And then what will he do? He will take Zerubbabel, his servant, and make him like his signet ring. Verse 23. A signet ring, that's a symbol of royal power. Uh, The royal seal, the the ink stamp of his majesty's government. Uh, Zerubbabel will be God's representative and conduit, the one who stands for God before the people, the one through whom God will act. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. And that's it. Haggai's microphone gets turned down. Hmm? It all seemed pretty clear. Sin dealt with, blessing coming, judgment. But now we're confused. To be honest, we're, we're three weeks in, but we haven't really got a handle on who Zerubbabel actually is. And the shaking, and the signet ring, and it's a strange note to end on. I think the purpose of this final prophecy is to put a point on the promise of blessing, to give it a focus, a target, if you will. But Zerubbabel, well, he didn't even make it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. You don't see many little Zerubbabels running around in church today. And this is pretty much the last we hear of him. He disappears off the scene quite quickly after the events described in Ezra. Did God get the wrong man? No. There were two places where Zerubbabel crops up in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and Luke chapter 3, verse 27. Both genealogies, of course. For Zerubbabel was of the house of David. He came a few hundred years after David, Solomon, Solomon's sons, and half a millennium or so before Jesus. I don't think this prophecy was ever really about Zerubbabel. I don't think he was the point God's people were supposed to fix their eyes and their hope upon. God used him. Let's not underplay him. God used him amazingly to do the incredible work of rebuilding God's temple. But Zerubbabel, he wasn't the final point. He was just a pointer, a place marker for a much greater servant to come, a much greater son of David, a much greater chosen one. For we are already on the other side of the day everything changed, Jesus' resurrection day. But there's another day to come, the Bible tells us, another day when the changes of that first day will be worked out in history when all will see what God on that first day has achieved. And that's the day of Christ's return. The day when Psalm 2 will reach its fulfillment with Christ appointed Son of God installed on the throne, wearing his Father's signet ring, overturning, shattering, overthrowing his enemies once and for all and ruling in glory for the rest of eternity. That is a day 
for which I cannot wait. Brothers and sisters, it won't always be like this. It won't always be so hard. Look to your day of deliverance. Look to your deliverer. Look to Christ. Let's pause. And then I'll lead us in a prayer.